Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And today, as always, we have another exceptional example of black excellence uh, and someone who we're all very eager to hear what he has to tell Daryl. Uh, our guest today is, is Chris Campbell. And we're, you can remember a few weeks ago, we had uh, a world champion wrestler on, well, we have another one. Chris uh, has an incredible uh, wrestling pedigree and actually an academic and overall administration and leadership background. So Chris was a two-time NC2A uh, champion. He was a three-time World Cup champion. He was a world champion wrestler, winning both a gold medal and a silver medal. And then at the age of, I believe, Chris, 38, you became the oldest wrestler to ever medal at the Olympics. And he achieved a, a bronze medal at the age of 38. And for those that don't know wrestling, you're pretty much over the hill at 28. Uh, and I think Chris had taken maybe six or seven years off in the meantime. So that was, that was one of the great accomplishments in Olympic sports to come back from that. But in addition to that, you know, Mr. Campbell is, is also a graduate of Cornell Law School and has been a, a practicing attorney for many years. He was the former executive director of USA Boxing, which is the Olympic governing body for boxing and was also uh, the vice chair and chairman uh, of the Athletes Advisory Council, which was a part of the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee uh, governing body. So uh, an, an, exceptional, an exceptional experience and sort of the rare example of the athlete that reaches, reached the highest levels of achievement in athletics and then sort of reached back or stepped forward and provided you know, a steady hand of leadership around the administration of, of Olympic level sports and athletics. So welcome, Chris. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, Chris, my gosh, I'm exhausted just listening to all those accomplishments. <laughs> and, um, you know, our, our thing is that we like to demystify black excellence. And so because we often meet people when they're so successful, kids, you know, see almost see kind of the finished product. And what we like to do is go back to young Chris when you hadn't yet, you know, achieved all these accolades. Was there anything that happened to you in your early days that helped be a turning point for you in terms of how you thought about your own life and that led you down this path? Well, yeah, maybe. I, I can remember a couple of things. If, uh, I, I can remember, uh, I think I was in a really deep depression like when I was a child, like in third or fourth grade. Uh, and so in fourth grade, I just had totally shut down. And, and then, you know, I started having some really good teachers, you know. Um, I had a seventh grade teacher that was excellent, really where wanted me to emphasize writing and so forth. So where was that? It? Excuse me? Where, where was this? This was in Westfield, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, so I had some excellent teachers there. Um, and then, and then for me, from an athletic perspective, for whatever reason, I always thought I was the best. I can remember I thought I was the best runner of anybody. And, and I would always, uh, you know, run faster than most of the kids on the block. And 
Then this one kid moved in. His name was Kenny Blackwell, I believe it was. He was really fast. And he beat me. And it just, <laughs> my mind couldn't handle it. So I had to race him four or five times. He beat me all five times, right? <laughs> and handle it. Um, I couldn't understand it. It didn't equate to me. Um, but with respect to wrestling, I when I started wrestling later on, say like in high school, I always had envisioned that I would be the best in the world. And I can remember walking down the street telling um, this girl I was flirting with, hey, I'm going to be the best wrestler in the world. Uh, you just won't wait and see. And that was just in my head. Um, I don't know why, but, you know, and I think that carried me through because I think in a lot of matches that was in, you know, you can either get, give up or quit or, or you can fight through it. And if you're such that you believe you should be the best, then you fight through it a lot of times, I think. Wow. So, but where do you think that came from? I mean, did, were there experiences with your parents, your family? Like, where did that edge come from, that, that part of your ego? I don't have a clue. Um, my, I guess my uneducated view of it would be that some people just have the killer instinct and some people don't. And you can try all you want if you don't have a killer instinct to be a killer, but it ain't going to work. And if you're, if you got the killer instinct, um, then, you know, you just, you're going to go through walls to get what you want. That's the way I see it. Were, were there members of your family, siblings or parents or an aunt or uncle that had a similar bust through walls attitude? You know, I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. Um, I was, you know, my father wasn't around. Um, and my mother was a devout Jehovah's Witness. So, like, she didn't want me to be involved in sports. So my whole sport, sporting point of view came from me. Uh, I was the one who was going to the practice. And, for example, I, uh, my mother wouldn't sign my permission slip to wrestle my junior year in high school because uh, she felt that I should be doing ministry and not uh, competing in athletics. Uh, and uh, I can remember I went to the junior college about, I don't know, 45 minutes away from my house every day to wrestle with that team because I just love wrestling. So for, for me, and then for, for whatever reason, my senior year, I asked her again, she signed it. So I got to wrestle and win the state championships. So for me, it was always a love of the sport. So Chris, just, just to repeat what you just said. So your junior year, you're in high school, your mother wouldn't sign the permission slip for wrestling. So you then somehow made it 45 minutes, I guess, every day to the local junior college and train with grown men. Yeah. And I think it probably helped me too. Yeah. <laughs> because I was, I, was, I was wrestling with state champions. Hmm. Chat, boy, I tell you, if we could, Ian, if we could bottle this, it'd be, it'd be a heck of, a, it'd be a heck of a product to sell. I mean, that is really to have that kind of fortitude at such a young age. It's, it's really quite remarkable. Well, what? And so, you finished high school. You know, what led you? How did you make your college choice in terms of where you were going to wrestle and how you thought about the head coach and that whole process? Well, um, because I only competed one year in high school, you know, I wasn't recruited by the big time colleges. Um, um, so I was looking at Montclair State and I think there was a, Maryland was also a school I was looking at. I got an offer for a full ride to Maryland. And fortunately, I only signed, a, I think it was a regional uh, agreement. 
but then the the coach, his name is Richie Softman of of um, Montclair State, said to me, Chris, I can't allow you to go to Maryland. You've got too much talent. He's going to waste it. You have to go out and be coached by this guy named Dan Gable. Um, and and as a coincidence, Dan Gable had come to my high school. Now you know I was what a couple thousand about a thousand miles away or so. He had flown to my high school to do our athletic uh, program closing ceremony, so to speak, for the year. So oh, wow. he, he could, and Chris, Chris, let me just do one thing for our viewers who, who may not know who Dan Gable is. So at this point, Dan Gable had won common theme, right, world champion. He had, he had become an Olympic champion at the 72 Olympics, not giving up one point the entire time. Dan was also one match from being undefeated through his high school and college career. He lost his last match in college. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he, he's also he probably robbed. the most – what's that? He got robbed. That <laughs> he's probably – and then I'm sorry, Chris, but just for a reason. He's also probably, without a doubt, one of the greatest sport coaches ever. I think he won 15 championships out of 17, something like that. But please go on, Chris. Yeah, no. So Dan Gable was like um, the Michael Jordan of wrestling, if you can put it simply, uh, in, in every respect. Um, so, but, I, you know, I didn't know much about wrestling at the time. Um, but for some reason, I believed the guy. I believe Richie Softman. So, um, and I don't know why to this day I, that, that, you know, you don't usually go – do stuff like that. So I had a car that I had bought because I you know, worked all the time at gas stations and stuff. I sold the car, got a plane ticket to Iowa City right after right after high school. Uh, got a job at a factory cleaning um, car parts, and then I went to uh, wrestling practice uh, that they were having in the summertime every day, working with Gable. And then I think they uh, they offered me books. I think once I showed up for the for the school year. Then after the after my freshman year, I had been, won the um, Big Ten championship, and I was the most outstanding rusher in the Big Ten. So then I got a full ride. Wow, I mean, Chris, you just your story is so extraordinary because you seem to have developed a self motivation from a very early age. You found mentors, coaches. Not everyone is so is so fortunate. So I'm, I'm still just curious, like what what has made you so I mean, almost like a uh, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Were there other coaches or mentors early that that stepped in? Well, I had a, I had a great uh, little league football coach. His name was Bruce Johnson, um, and he was uh, he wasn't the type of rah rah yelling kind of coach. He was this real empathetic, uh, you know, really nice person. I mean, and if you talk to any of the, the people that that he coached. Uh, whether they were really good or really bad, they all loved it, right? And so for me, I developed a love of sport from him because, I mean, he would have us watching films. He would do all the stuff and talk about how you had to be dedicated and committed every day and so forth. So maybe it was him that really sort of seated me with, with what I needed to do to be great because he certainly had all the aspects of watching films, making sure you're committed, making sure you're training, making sure you exercise or drill you know the different positions right he was he was dead on on all that stuff but the most important thing he was just a nice person and and i tell you a story with him so it was my i think i was in seventh or sixth or seventh grade or whatever and i wasn't going to go out for football in the league of football because 
you know, my mother wanted me to, to be Jehovah's Witness and so forth and focus on that. So Bruce comes up to me, you know, because he knew I was going to be on his football team and that would sort of change the balance of power. And he said, Chris, why don't you come out? Are you, aren't you coming out? And I said, no, I'm not coming out. And then I said, well, you know what, Bruce, if you let me play quarterback, I'll come out, you know, <laughs> um, because I, I, you know, I had been, a, been running back and to me, that was boring. I, I really wanted to be a quarterback. So he said, yeah, we'll do it. So then I got my mother to sign. And I got to play the league. So the first day of practice, I'm thinking, oh, this white guy is going to lie to me and that he's not going to put me a quarterback. First thing he did say, Campbell, quarterback. And then I played quarterback for him. And I mean, I just loved playing foot quarterback. I loved playing for him. Um, it was just a joy. And I, so I think that was my real foundation of, of sport. But um, yeah, I, you know, f- with respect to my, I, I can remember when I fell in love, really in love with wrestling. I was, I was in junior high school, I think, and I was watching a high school match. And um, this high school wrestler did a switch, which is a technique move, you know, not big time fancy technique, but it was, it just looked beautiful to me. And so for me, I, I uh, once I saw that, I was in love with it and I, I had to do it. But that was me for wrestling. Um, with my motivation, I think your question, really the important thing was, I think I was lucky to find what found find what I loved early. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, and I think that's just luck, um, you know, and having a, well, I had a town that basically exposed all of its black or white, it's all of its students to, you know, athletics, music, all everything. And so I got exposed to that and, and I found what I loved. So. I, I just think it, a lot of it was love. Did Chris, did sport impact also how you thought about academics? Because obviously you don't get into Cornell Law School and pass the bar in multiple states without some real rigor intellectually. Did you always have that or did sport somehow play a part in giving you that discipline? You know, I really didn't focus on uh, my education extremely uh, until I'd say till after I finished wrestling in high college because my grade point average was really poor when I graduated from Iowa. Um, and I'll tell you a story about that if, if you have a moment. Um, Please. Um, so I was, I went to, you know, I had, I think I had won the world championship. So I, I was definitely understood what it took to be great. And I figured I could just take that, that model and be great with being an attorney as well. So I went to the University of Iowa's, uh, um, they had a minority, minority uh, recruitment person. I said, hey, look, I'm going, I wanna be an attorney. You need to help me out, you need to get me in. And the guy laughed at me. He said, you know, Chris, look at your grades. Some people are just uh, not meant to be attorneys. You know, you know, maybe you'd be a wrestling coach or something like that, but basically go away. Uh, and, so, and so, you know, I'm f- coming off a fresh of becoming a world champion and understanding what, what that took. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be an attorney and you need to help me out. So he wouldn't have it. So anyway, I took the LSATs. And when, and when, when I took the LSATs, uh, I got a very high score. I was in the uh, top 25% of all the people that scored on the LSATs in the country. I was in the top five percentile of the people, of minority people that that scored. And we were in a time, obviously, then with this country, this was pre-Reagan. So this country actually wanted to, to try and help to have uh, a minority students, all students sort of 
in, in the program. So now I'm starting to be recruited by a bunch of schools, uh, Georgetown, uh, Cornell, uh, and so forth. And I, I, but I went to Iowa. I went to there and they, they, they ushered me into the, uh, to the dean of the law school. And the first thing he said to me is, Chris, how did you cheat on the test? <laughs> so that was it for me in Iowa, right? Because I, I had worked my butt off for that, for that, that exam. Um, so that's my story about that. To talk to a world, to talk to a world champion that way. I, mean, it's, I guess it's the thing where, because you were raised there, brought up, you know, you develop there and they just look at you in a different way. But to me, that is just, I don't, anyone that can win a world championship in any athletic endeavor is obviously capable of literally doing anything. Yeah, well, if you love it. Yeah, I think it, it I do t think it takes a lot of intelligence to figure things out at that level, at the world championship level. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, two, two people came to mind as you were talking. One was Jim Brown, who I admire so much. And I, you know, I, I know a little bit of his story and sort of, you know, how he got into football and when he finally found football, what that meant for him. But no father, you know, his mother had a lot of boyfriends. And sometimes he had to sleep in the street because the boyfriend was at the house and he just, he had that intestinal fortitude. He had that, but at the same time, you know, exceptionally great mentors who, who almost all were white men who guided him, who, 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 you know, developed a level of trust in and got him to be, you know, the, the person that he was. And then I, I was just listening recently to um, uh, a Joe Rogan podcast with uh, the young lady, the African-American woman who's a two-time Olympic boxing champion and now a world champion in boxing. Uh, Clarissa is her first name. I'm, I'm blanking on her last name, but literally she's been boxing since the age of 11, won two, two cycles of Olympic gold medals and has won, I think, world championships in, in four, three or four weight classes. And again, the same intestinal fortitude, the same, oh, I can accomplish this, because she found something that she loved. Right. Uh, it, really, really remarkable. I mean, Chris, do you have any thoughts about, are we doing enough in America to help kids find the things that they love? Or what could we be doing differently? Well, first of all, I want to say my mother was great. She wasn't, <laughs> she wasn't uh, not there. She was there and loved me. And, and I was well supported from my mother and my grandmother. So I didn't have that problem that Jim Brown had. I had a sure. great family. Um, you know, I, I think we've shortchanged our educational process so much so we could fight wars, killing brown and black people all over the world. Um, so that, you know, from an educational perspective, you know, there are schools that don't have books. I mean, L.A., I mean, how could you have schools that don't have books in L.A., right? Um, they don't have, you know, uh, counselors. So from an educational perspective, I think we're really failing as a country. Uh, and there's really no excuse for that. Yeah. And, and then, oh, go ahead, Ian. No, no, okay, go ahead. So af understood. Athletically, though, you know, America loves sports, right? I mean, we, we, we are, I think, I mean, you've been around the globes, you know, relative to America, how other countries embrace. I know Iran loves wrestling and Russia has their favorite sports, but it would seem to me that, you know, well, the question still is to you in the position that you've been in, does America do enough to, to help young boys and girls find that confidence and that passion, you know, sometimes through athletics or, or are there, 
Are there other things that we should be doing? Well, from a from a, from a sports perspective, I mean, you know, we have um, sort of an Olympic committee, Olympic movement that's sort of in a state of flux, is not too organized. And so when we do well in the Olympics, it's not because we have planned it right, say like Russia. We do well in the Olympics by, by, by chance, or maybe by just by mere volume of the sports programs we have. Mm-hmm. We're relying on our division one colleges to train our Olympic athletes. Uh, you know, and, and if you look at how the, the division one colleges are starting to drop most of the Olympic sports, then that's not gonna be there for a while. Um, and so uh, we have to do a lot more that way. But again, as I pointed out, like in high school, um, I, I think high school should have strong music programs, strong, um, I think, um, um, news, news, learning about how to write news programs, newspapers and stuff like that. I think we need to have strong programs there because um, I think that's really important. Um, uh, but I don't think we do. I mean, I, I, and, and there should be strong, uh, good trade schools and all, all that stuff. So there's a lot that we could be doing that we're not doing. And I think we're not doing it because we're not focused on people. We're focused on money and war. Wow, wow. Um, you said something earlier, I just, I have to go back to it. You know, you said you, when you were growing up, um, you had that interaction with, with the coach and you're like, it's a white person. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you, you didn't trust white people. I'm right. curious, how has that, uh, evolved over time well i mean i think you know you know dealing with bruce bruce changed that and the, my, my best friend in high school was charlie shrope was a white guy so i think that that really changed it but you know i'm always leery if i go into a new situation about how somebody's going to view me whether they're uh, prejudiced or not but uh, i do think i give people the benefit of the doubt and i think it's important to give people the benefit of the fact i think it's important to love your neighbor basically i think that's like the fundamental principle um of having a happy life because if you don't then you're going to be miserable and in and in this current moment where it seems that there's a lot of division by race how do you how do you think about giving people how how do we create a a situation in which more people do give others the benefit of the doubt do you think i think you got to educate people and you got to talk i mean if you look at a situation like it over in Israel and the Palestinians in the Middle East, I mean, I don't know, maybe things just get so toxic that you can never solve the problem. You know, they're in just like a death spiral. They're just going to kill each other until it's until there's nobody left. Uh, but you would hope that you, the more people um, that feel like they need to love their neighbor and they need to treat other people as they want to be treated, um, the more people we have doing that, the better off we're all going to we're all going to be, and the happier we're going to be. Very good. So, uh, we have a, a segment uh, in the podcast that we call the speed round, and and we we present to you uh, a couple of individuals or a couple of of uh, philosophies or ideas, and ask you to pick one uh, and tell us why. So we'll we'll start with our classic uh, Martin or Malcolm. I, I would say uh, Martin. Um, because of his um, his uh, his stance on nonviolence and loving, and also because I think he understood at a very um, really very early age that it was all about labor. You know that the, 
the, the bigotry and the suppression of people was dealing with uh, labor as opposed to the, the capitalists who owned everything. Uh, so he, he understood those two things. And so that's why I would say Martin. S civil rights or economic development? Um, I don't see how you have one without the other. Um, um, well, civil rights is the foundation of economic development. So I'll say civil rights. You said it's the foundation of what? Civil rights would be the foundation of economic development. You can't have economic development if you don't have rights. You know, like if you're in an apartheid state, I've had many experiences where, you know, I couldn't get jobs. It wasn't because I wasn't the best candidate. It was because of prejudice. So, mm -hmm. Well, and, and our last question kind of feeds into this and, and sort of the career decisions you've made. Business or law? Um, I'd say a lawyer. In my role, yeah, I'd say a lawyer. What, what about law, uh, you know, obviously attracted you and what is it that keeps you keeps you obviously motivated you're still practicing law doing things what what about that you what, what makes you pick that well I, I think from a legal perspective you 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 start to understand what's happening and so you can sort of warn people about what's going to happen to them about what is happening uh, and so that that would be the the way i why i would say law from my perspective i can tell you how for example if you know you've got a business that's uh that's uh, that's you know creating problems all over the world. That that ultimately is going to create problems for you. Those kinds of things, if that makes sense. Um, okay. Thank you. Got it. Well, Chris, as as you know, Nike and I uh, thirty years ago put together this idea for the Invisible Man on this idea that we felt invisible in in the face of a dominant narrative of black men. Um, essentially being an endangered species. And we were concerned that there were probably young men from all over the country who were only seeing one view of black possibility. And we created this character, Daryl, a 16 year old who lives in forgotten USA. And so fast forward uh, to today, where again, there's a dominant narrative uh, that suggests that you're much more likely to get shot while walking, shot while driving, shot while doing anything. And uh, it may skew your sense of possibility. So we like to close each session by asking each guest, you know, what would you say to the Daryls of contemporary America? You know, the 16 year old, black, white, or of any race, but what would you say is advice you'd want to give to him to find his way through the world? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is f find out what you love. And like I said, some of that is, is a matter of luck. But then you have to take personal responsibility for your success and understand that you can be great. Uh, every one of us has something that's great in us. Um, and, and with a kid, a 16-year-old kid who says it is in an inner city, which is something different from what I had to deal with, because I had a great college, great high school um, great teachers, they really need to, one, believe in themselves. It's so important to believe in yourself uh, as a foundation. And two, then you've got to really take on your education to sort of make yourself better, which would be if your schools don't have books, figure out where a library is, go to the library, start writing down uh, daily what, what you want to accomplish academically. Um, you really take control of have a really long-term goals for active, 
academic success, and then write down short-term daily goals of what you need to do. Um, so that's taking control of your life uh, and not being a victim of circumstances. It's really hard, I think, for those students in those situations that I can understand that. Um, but those, those are the, the two things that I think uh, I would, the three things that I, th I think I would say um, to those children. Uh, the most of all, believe in yourself. Because I, 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 I understand now that we're only limited by our, our, our imagination, our thought. And, and, and so if we don't have any limits, if we really believe in ourselves, you know, we can accomplish a lot of great things. Now, you may not end up like I, I thought I was going to be an Olympic gold medal. You may not end up an Olympic gold medalist. But, you know, if you fall a little bit short, you know, you can live with it. But silver medal is pretty cool. Silver medal is pretty cool too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you hear the gold medal like yeah, silver. I don't know about that. <laughs> actually, there's there's a whole there's a whole analysis that actually people who win silver are more depressed than those that win bronze. Because if you yeah, win exactly. silver, you could have won gold. Where bronze, you got to actually win the bronze medal. It's a very it's, like I know I I've got about this close to a, a gold medal, but at least I can read and be close to people like Chris. There you go. If you win a silver medal, you lost. If you get a silver medal, you lost your last match. If you get a bronze medal, you won your last match. Yes, thank right. you. Right. Right. Wow. Well, Chris, thank you very much. I think those are powerful words. We're only limited by what you can imagine for yourself. So thank you for that. That's very, very inspiring and moving. And and thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, being part of this latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, if our viewers want to see any other episode, you can go to www.invisible.men. And uh, we're all about demystifying Black excellence. So, Chris, thank you for sharing your story. Okay. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.